Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. World Bank President Jim Yong Kim is stepping down at the end of January. He made that announcement on January 7th, surprising most observers for the fact that he's resigning from his post with three years left in his second term. This coming vacancy presents a key inflection point for the World Bank, according to my guest today, Scott Morris. Scott Morris is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development and a longtime observer and analyst of the World Bank. And in this conversation, we discuss Jim Kim's legacy at the bank and how his departure now sets the stage for a potential clash between the Trump administration and other governments over who will next lead the bank. An American has always headed the World Bank, and that's owing in large part to a deal struck between the United States and Europe in which the U.S. backs the European nominee for head of the International Monetary Fund, while Europe backs the U.S. nominee for head of the World Bank. But as Scott Morris explains, that long-standing tradition may now come to an end. This is obviously a very timely conversation. We kick off discussing the impact that Jim Kim made as head of the World Bank since 2012, and then preview the coming drama at the World Bank over his succession. Quick note before we begin, big thank you to everyone who has become a premium subscriber to the show. Thank you so much for supporting the show and earning rewards for yourself in the process. You can learn more about our premium subscriber club by going to globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with Scott Morris of the Center for Global Development. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You're obviously like a very close observer of the World Bank. I, I am sort of a general observer. I was pretty shocked by this announcement. Were you surprised? I was surprised. I mean, um, you know, this is relatively early in Jim Kim's second term. So, the, and and frankly, uh, the circumstances of, of him obtaining a second term were such that, uh, I think people expected that he would serve that term. So I think it clearly was a surprise. And how, looking back now, would you assess uh, his legacy? Sort of what stamp, what impact did he make on the World Bank? Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I guess I would I would frame it in a couple of ways. One is I think um, there's certainly among bank watchers, I would say there is an attitude toward Jim Kim and his leadership that sort of has sort of a residual of um, 
sort of negative feelings, let's put it that way. So and I say that because I, you know, I think we do have to remember his early days at the bank, which frankly were pretty rocky. So number one, the fact of his nomination um, was uh, turned out to be more controversial than I think people would have would have expected in the sense that, um, you know, this had, he was the next in the line of an unbroken chain of American presidents at the bank. And in 2011, we had finally reached a point where the other country shareholders of the bank had, you know, were really growing frustrated with, with um, that as a preordained outcome. So sort of with indifference to his own uh, resume, um, I think there was this growing sentiment that uh, it was time for uh, a non-American. And in fact, you had, you know, for the first time in the history of the bank, you had other candidates running in opposition to Jim Kim, who were um, both, um, highly credible. Um, Nigeria's finance minister at the time, a former finance minister for Colombia as well. Um, so, you know, with the outcome as it was, you know, Jim Kim entered, entered the job with a fair amount of, frankly, bad feelings um, from a broader stakeholder community. And, and well, what can I say? Are, are, were those bad feelings both a combination of his his resume, which did not include like you know banking experience or, or finance experience. He was an NGO leader, an anthropologist, a medical doctor, and the president of of Dartmouth. Um, whereas the other candidates were like finance ministers from large countries. Um, was was that part of the resentment? I tended to. So I think uh, nominally, uh, you certainly heard that. I tend to think that people making those arguments really were using them to express just an underlying um, dissatisfaction with, with again, the, the preordained outcome. Mm. Um, because, you know, I, I to be honest, I, I don't find very credible, particularly with the track record um, of his seven years, that how he was fundamentally deficient uh, in a way that harmed the bank, that he brought nothing <laughs> positive to the bank. That just isn't plausible to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there is um, an ideal resume for this job. Certainly, there are characteristics, um, and that takes nothing away from those other candidates. As I said, these were highly accomplished individuals, and in fact, as you said, their resumes did speak more directly to sort of finance ministries, uh, who are themselves the the governors of the World Bank. Um, but yes, I mean, so that that was. A stated element of it. That he's I, not, I, yeah. not I mean, one of us. Well, well, it's funny because I, I like on that not one of us point. I mean, I remember early in his tenure. I don't know. It must have been 2013, 2012, something like that, where I saw him give a speech and he sort of mused out loud and sort of casually referenced the fact that 15 years earlier he was on the streets protesting the World right, Bank, right. and now here yeah, he is as president of the World Bank. Yeah, and he certainly. Um, he didn't shy away from drawing out the differences. <laughs> so yeah. I think, um, you know, he, it was clear to him that he wasn't going to present himself uh, as someone deeply steeped in uh, the issues of finance ministry. So why, why hide that? Why not embrace who he actually was? Mm-hmm. So you, you, you definitely saw that. Um, so all of those were elements that, you know, on day one in the job, I think had him a little bit on his back feet, frankly, um, just um, a real and and the amount of momentum, frankly, that was behind um, 
uh, opposition candidates, I think when you had the outcome that you did, you still had a lot of actors, including countries who were in the position to cast votes, um, a, a, a bit disgruntled. Um, then the other, I mean, and you know, still in early days, I think the other aspect of this that sort of have this lasting uh, negative uh, image of of uh, Dr. Kim is, you know, he made a choice uh, to prioritize an internal reorganization of the World Bank. Um, and to do so in parallel with a, um, a series of, of cost-cutting uh, measures, all of which, particularly in combination, were were just um, certainly deeply unpopular, but also anxiety-producing within the institution. Yeah, like and, those bureaucratic uh, organization chart reshuffles never really sit well with entrenched bureaucracies, I have to imagine. Yeah, and, and they sort and, of re- you know rebelled against that. Yeah, and this is not, you know, I'll, you know, culturally, this is a noisy institution. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> employees, you know, there's, yeah, I think, uh, so they they are they will express themselves if they feel that um, they are being harmed or there's harm being done to the institution. So we, I think, we lived through, you know, the first two three years of of Jim's tenure was grappling with trying to carry forward those changes and the backlash against that. Um, and I would suspect, you know, I don't I, I shouldn't speculate from his perspective, but if, if he had it to go over, I'm not sure that that was mm-hmm. probably the first best thing to do. Well, what's interesting to me is that, you know, while inside the building, he was maybe a controversial figure for the reasons you, you cited, he seemed to be like fairly beloved by like the NGO community, by the activist community. He seemed to sort of really, at least publicly embrace um, a vision for the World Bank that focused more intensely on targeting and uplifting the world's most vulnerable people and sort of reorienting the World Bank towards ideals around sustainable de- sustainable development, sort of embracing the sustainable development goals. You know, he was, you know, you could always kind of count on him in sort of the, the big conference circuit to talk about, you know, sustainable development, fighting poverty and, 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 and all that. And for that, he seemed to be well-liked among the activists in the NGO community. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think then you sort of have to, you have to ask whether that rhetoric um, translated into some reorientation of the institution or change in sort of the, the strategy, the character of the institution. Did it? I would say, well, I think, you know, my view, if, if we carry this forward to where we are today, where the bank is today, compared to where it started with under Jim Kim's tenure, I mean, I would point to a couple of measures that I like because they, I think they're a bit more concrete than just sort of impressions of how he's viewed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, number one, this is- That's a- why I have you on the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving you my impressions. You tell me if yeah. they're correct or not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the World Bank today is a larger institution than it was when Jim Kim started. Um, and that's not due to any one thing, but it is a series of measures that shareholders have taken- um, along the way that have made it a bigger institution financially, um, most notably just last year, the uh, agreement on a capital increase um, for the bank, which frankly, I, you know, was uh, not expected. I think the certainly the conventional wisdom would have been at the time that why on earth would the Trump administration, the anti-multilateralists there, 
ever support more money for this bank, which, by the way, is lending a lot of it to countries like China. Um, and yet um, uh, the bank pulled that off. And, you know, I think it's fair to personalize that and say Jim Kim pulled that off. I mean, um, somehow he made enough of his relationship uh, with the people in the Trump administration to make them comfortable with this. And it does significantly expand the resources of the institution. Um, he's had sort of um, other successful fundraising rounds uh, in, in his tenure. And all of it adds up, as I said, to just a bigger footprint for the bank. Um, I would say more importantly than that, though, is an agenda uh, that is attached to that financing that is also more expansive in, in sort of the array of, of issues um, that the bank is, is, is addressing and the scale at which they're addressing them. And I think certainly at the top of the list, um, we have to look at their role on the climate agenda. Um, this is, you know, again, through deliberate action on the part of bank leadership, you know, this is now really sort of at the forefront of, of the bank's activities. It's, it's a very large part of what they do in the name of development is to address the effects of climate change. Um, Can you give like you know, one I, example of, of, of that? Just kind of make so it concrete think, for listeners, yeah. Well, um, I mean, at the project level, it really means um, saying no to certain things and saying yes to other things more often. So saying no to um, carbon, uh, certainly coal projects, just ruling them out flatly. And, you know, when Jim Kim came into office, that remained a very controversial uh, stance to take um, that you should rule, you should take an energy option off the table for countries that have energy needs, um, but they did carry through with that, and you don't see uh, coal financing uh, at the World Bank anymore. And that, you know, in some ways, that's pretty extraordinary. Uh, but I think more meaningful is just devoting more of the bank's financing um, to clean energy and to types of infrastructure that are more climate friendly. Um, doing infrastructure in a way that's more climate friendly. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, I think, again, to a surprising degree, if you look at that capital increase last year, which the Trump administration supported, it came with very explicit new commitments on climate finance. They they raised their, you know, their, their targets for their overall lending portfolio even higher uh, for climate friendly projects. And, you know, again, somehow, um, the Trump folks just needed to swallow hard on that and accept it. They, they, that, that's the apparent um, reality, given what, what the outcome was. Um, so that's um, there's no question that that agenda for the bank looks different today than it did um, seven, eight years ago. And in my mind, it's certainly a move in the right direction. Uh, but it's also, you know, as I said, there are, there are an array of sort of arenas in which the bank is visible now. You know, you look at the bank sort of moving fairly quickly to respond to the refugee crises mm -hmm. um, in, you know, in ways as an institution, it, it is has not, you know, we, we've tended to view crises as humanitarian crises. And there are a set of humanitarian actors um, that respond. And, you know, again, during Jim Kim's time, you saw this evolution in thinking toward identifying a role for the bank in particular. 
Now, like Ebola is another good example. They, they, they um, and that's right. Yeah, and yeah, they responded. That, that's interesting. Yeah, so, so prior to Kim, they really didn't do much in the humanitarian uh, field in terms of, of response. Yeah. But he, that's interesting. I, I didn't really and, and, put that together. And I would say that's you know, it's. I think it's complicated, frankly. Do I mm-hmm. do I offer those as clear evidence of positive steps? You know, I don't know. I think mm-hmm. to some degree there was a so there's a conceptual case that was made and i think he was part of making it for his institution that there's sort of a nexus of humanitarian and development issues that the bank needs to you know address that you know for example with refugee camps the fact that these are not you know one two year stays for refugees they can be in the decades well mm-hmm. on that time horizon you are talking about development issues. Um, it's not all short-term crisis response. So, so there was a clear rationale that was offered that made the case for the bank. The more, you know, frankly, a more cynical view of, of that is, you know, the bank stepped in um, because financing was not forthcoming from other channels. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, the World Bank is a bank. And if it has nothing else, it has a pot of money. And I think to some degree that so, you know, it was viewed as sort of Jim Kim perhaps being opportunistic and stepping in to try to offer financing where it appeared to be missing. So, so can I ask what comes next for the bank? Uh, presumably now, you know, there is um, the decision who to replace him. Uh, I mean, right now, Christina Georgieva uh, is, uh, is stepping in to become the, the director, the interim president, I suppose, I don't know what the proper term of art is of, of the bank. Uh, but now there has to be a, a newly nominated uh, president. So, so what comes next in terms of that sort of argument? And are we going to see um, a kind of repeat of what happened last time in terms of various countries trying to push back against uh, the U.S. nominee and the idea that the U.S. always has de facto control over who is the president of the World Bank? Right. So, so as you said, uh, Kristalina, who's who has been serving as chief executive officer, is now will now be the interim president. And I think, uh, if I had my wishes, that will be for a, a fairly long period of time. And I say that because I think what happens next is a fairly rocky path um, forward, uh, because I would fully expect um, the Trump administration will exercise its prerogative to nominate a candidate as it always, every, uh, every white house has when the opportunity arose. Um, but increasingly from what we saw from, uh, 2011 is that every country has that prerogative and it may be that more and more of them, uh, wish to exercise it, particularly given attitudes towards this American president. Um, so I think, you know, there are considerable risks uh, in that kind of environment. I mean, competition in general, we tend to view as healthy, and I do. Um, but I do worry that um, that the Trump folks are not, um, don't appreciate deeply enough the, the risks that they face, actually, in putting a candidate forward who is not viewed as credible enough, um, who even could be viewed as credible, but um, is at the end of the day a nominee of uh, President Trump, and therefore that is too much to swallow for some countries who are being asked to vote for this person. So there's a real risk that they could put forward a candidate who fails, who, mm. who doesn't manage to obtain the majority votes. 
Um, and that, you know, frankly, that worries me in the sense that um, we need a U.S. stance towards the World Bank that is on on balance a positive one and, and an attitude toward the bank that is positive. And I think, you know, this would be marked the first time in history, not only that you wouldn't have an American president, but that you had an American candidate who failed. And I, you know, I worry what the reaction uh, from the White House to that would be. Um, that doesn't, you know, that like, doesn't cause well, is, is one potential reaction like withholding funding for, for the bank or, or, yeah, or doing absolutely. what? So, 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 so that's like the big danger. So, right? And that's that's a conversation that you have like across UN agencies um, when like, particularly, you know, it was sort of, um, you know, small potatoes compared to the head of the World Bank. But you had this debate uh, over who should head the International Organization for Migration, like the World Bank was always right, head by an right. American. But the Trump administration put forward like a transparently unqualified person for it. And he was defeated. Um, and so, like, but the the worry was it was like gamesmanship. So now that the you know number one, you know, the U.S. is the top funder of the uh, in, or international organization for migration. So is the Trump administration going to pull its funding now that their nominee has been defeated? Um, but this is like magnified like a hundred times when you're talking about the World Bank, which is you know a much more like broadly relevant uh, international institution for most Americans. And on the, I mean, on the issue of financial contributions, you know, there are multiple targets here. So we had the capital increase that was agreed to last year, but it's, you know, it's five years of worth of contributions to, to actually make that a reality. And, you know, does the U.S. Um, take another look at that commitment and, and seek to pull it back? Um, even I would argue is probably more importantly is that this is a 2019 is a big fundraising year for, um, what is called IDA, uh, the International Development Association within the World Bank. And this is really the big platform, the global platform for development finance for the poorest countries. And the U.S. Um, cumulatively is the largest donor. If you look at the full history, it is no longer the largest donor today, but it remains a, just a critically important contributor to that uh, replenishment process um, on the order of, you know, three to up as much as $4 billion uh, of a commitment. And, you know, that hasn't been made yet. That'll happen later this year. And I think um, I think people will be sort of sensitive to the implications of, of that yeah. fundraising, depending on how this selection process goes. So these are, there's certainly yeah. points of leverage. It's not to say that other countries don't have that kind of leverage as well. The UK actually has emerged as the largest donor to IDA. Um, so they, you know, I think they can use that too if they decided they wanted to be in a different place from the U.S. on well, this well, presidential but, selection. I mean, isn't there this like unspoken or maybe it's like spoken agreement between the United States and Europe that, um, you know, the Europeans will back the U.S. nominee for World Bank if the U.S. Right, banks the right. nominee for the International Monetary Fund? And, yeah, and so, so fundamentally, yeah, yeah that, that, that's kind of what this is really about at the end of the day. Um, and it continued to be about in 2011 is that 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 this the so-called duopoly <laughs> uh, still held that you had um, the largest European countries in, in terms of shareholding at the World Bank continued to hold to an understanding that they were going to offer their support for the American nominee of the bank with an expectation that the U.S. would support a European candidate at the fund. And therefore, we have Jim Kim and Christine Lagarde. Um, but even at that time, you know, for those of us who were involved in these processes, it was clear that that, that understanding was fraying. 
And I will say that I left that experience working on Jim Kim's candidacy with convinced that the next time this came up, there was absolutely no guarantee that even the most qualified American candidate would would uh, you know could be viewed as preordained. But does not um, does the US... and I think that is because mm-hmm. sorry, go ahead. Both, yeah, both sides of that understanding are no longer um, so keen on it. Um, and and again, at the time, I think on you know speaking on from the U.S. perspective, it wasn't so clear to us that you know we it was so important to retain this prerogative at the bank that we were completely indifferent to who was appointed at the fund. And of course, and it helped a lot, frankly, that Christine Lagarde was the candidate. She's very widely respected and, and all that. But I think there was already a, some degree of resentment that, you know, why should we sign ourselves on to accepting whomever you know, the, these European countries put forward? You know, we don't, yeah. we're the United States. We shouldn't bind ourselves that way. So I think, and, and, you know, so look at the situation today and the state of the relationships that this White House has with the countries we're talking about, Germany, France, the UK. Um, I don't see the ba- a level of trust that, that would be the basis for, um, you know, we'll support you today uh, if you support our IMF candidate a few years from now. Yeah. You know, really, are are they both uh, on board with that? Well, well, and and further to that point, doesn't the U.S. basically have a veto at the World Bank's executive board or governing board? It has like you know just over fifteen percent of of the shares of the voting power, which gives it like a, a de facto veto, right? No, in fact, that's often misunderstood. This is not um, a veto uh, uh, level decision. It's the decision to appoint a president is is a simple majority of the board, and therefore that sixteen percent isn't uh, all that impressive. Okay, um, and it is why the U.S. needs a coalition, and historically it's always been a coalition of Europeans in the lead. But they need a coalition; they have to get the fifty percent um, from their starting point of sixteen percent, um, and it's um, you know it's not even. You know, in any environment where you have a competitive race, multiple candidates, it is a very complicated endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, looking at it practically speaking, it involves things like, you know, in the in a very short period of time, a matter of uh, a few weeks, you have to get your candidate on airplanes twenty four seven, visiting all the capitals that need to be visited, um, and you have to build the that sort of voting coalition and figure out what's going to work and. You have sort of a whole team of officials who are on the phones constantly talking to counterparts, gauging where they are. Um, you know, all of that is, is a part of this process if, if they're going to be successful. So so just to, to wrap up, what are you looking out for next in terms of how um, this kind of drama will, will unfold? Um, what's, so what are I, the next moves? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I think there's a key first step is that I'm watching to see any official announcement from the World Bank board about a timeline. Um, and uh, because that speaks to how countries are positioning themselves and particularly the US, do they want this to move quickly uh, because they already have a candidate in mind or do they need time to figure out a candidate? Um, are they worried that other countries wanna move quickly with their own candidates? So I think there's some jockeying going on right now, testing of the waters to figure out when do we formally pull the trigger on this uh, process. Um, and then 
you know, once that happens, then, you know, the doors open and candidates can, can enter and, and we'll see, um, you know, I, I, I won't really, I won't speculate on names actually, but, um, there certainly are credible people out there, um, who would be politically attractive to various coalitions. And, and we'll see one of the interesting things about the rules is you don't have to be nominated by your own country, any country, any member country can nominate any individual, except they can't nominate their own executive directors at the board. <laughs> uh, well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. This is uh, very helpful and, and timely. Okay. My pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Scott Morris. That was very helpful, very timely. And yeah, you know, we'll see how this all plays out over the coming weeks and months. As always, a big thank you to the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester for being an ongoing content partner with this show. And we have a a few episodes coming up in the coming weeks from that content partnership. So stay tuned. I will see you next time. Bye.